Hey, welcome everybody, Andrew Kralachek here. Um, I'm really excited to be able to spend the next hour or so with a dear friend of mine, Kristen Lamarca, who um, I've had the luxury of knowing, gosh, I don't know how many, 10 plus years now. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that, at least six or seven, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I will read Kristen's official bio in just a second, but we originally met um, in Stephen LaBerge's uh, somewhat legendary Hawaii retreats. We're, we're both students um, under the mentorship of Stephen. And I think I originally met her whenever it was, the very first one. And then I came back and I started to co-teach a little bit with Stephen. So we hung out a little bit further then. And then we did a program together um, at uh, Shamala Mountain Center here in Colorado. So we had another week to hang out with uh, Stephen. Um, and I, I'm just delighted to be able to spend this time with you. Kristen is, is, in addition to being a dear friend, she's, a, a, I would say, um, an elite Lucy Kramer. She's extremely gifted, very knowledgeable, as you will soon discover for yourself, and just an absolute wealth of uh, resources for this uh, remarkable type of dreaming. So let me give you the official bio on Kristen, and then um, we're definitely not going to have a shortage of things to talk about because we share a really deep passion for this material. Mm. Um, so here's her deal. So Kristen Lamarca, PhD, is a clinical psychologist with expertise in applied psychophysiology and behavioral treatments for sleep disorders, notably insomnia and nightmares. She specializes in lucid dream therapy for a broad range of psychological conditions, so, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, grief, and loss. Kristen conducts research with Stephen LaBerge on how to maximize lucid dream induction and has co-authored a study showing that galantamine substantially increases lucid dreaming when combined with a proper mindset. She has been a co-facilitator for Lucidity, for Lucidity Institute's intensive retreat since 2010 and regularly provides trainings in lucid dreaming to healthcare professionals, researchers, and the wider community. She currently practices clinically at Lucidity sleep and psychiatry, and we'll have a link attached to that, and um, she'll have a chance to talk about that at the end of our um, together. And she also runs a six-week online workshop in lucid dreaming that integrates induction science with mindfulness approaches and personally tailored coaching, and we'll also send you the link to that. And Kristen, his, um, her program, her lucid dreaming online program, has been frequently referenced in our um, iClub community on the forum page, and so She's uh, developing quite a following in her own right. And so, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're really thrilled to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. And I'm thrilled to be here, too. And just thank you for your kind words. And, you know, just a couple of things to say about our relationship. You know, I'm, we, we aren't just co-students of the Lucidity Institute. You know, I'm a student of yours, Andrew, and I've just learned so much from you all these years. And even just joining Night Club recently has been uh, it's just been really wonderful to connect with you and so many people. You're such an engaging teacher. You're like a living encyclopedia sometimes and just so much more. It's just really fantastic to see the, the work that you're doing. And I just, I really wanted to, you know, say thank you for that and just, you know, keep up the good work. So happy to be here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, coming from you, that means a great deal. So, um, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you both as a member of our uh, Developing community, and obviously now in the post as I'm on every interview guest. And so, so gosh, so so many things to talk about. But but let's start with like, how did you get into this stuff? Um, tell us a little bit about your first lucid dream and, and what inspired you to take up 
this track um, really as, as a career and as a professional. Um, I think many of our listeners are always really inspired by people like you because, as you well know, Kristen, we don't exactly have a lot of role models in the Western world for mm-hmm. lucid dreaming and the like. And so um, tell us a little bit about how you got into this whole business. Right. Well, you know, I'm not like a lifelong natural lucid dreamer. I, I learned as an adult. Um, but I did have a, a lucid dream. My first one was when I was five years old. And it was interesting. It was, it was actually a kind of an out-of-body experience. I was not lucid. Um, I was hiding up in a tree from something. And my perspective kind of went over my body. And I, I realized that that can't be possible. This has to be a dream. And it was just, it was such a magical moment to kind of see that that was possible in the dream state. Uh, but at the time, you know, I, I didn't do much with it. Um, and, you know, didn't really think much about it until I grew up. And uh, I went to college and I was studying psychology at Marquette University. And I was actually taking some courses by Anis Sheikh, who I think they've done some work back in the day with Jane Gackenbach, which is who's a, another famous lucid dreaming researcher. And he uh, taught us in his courses on the psychology of death and dying and mental imagery. He taught us about uh, Stephen LeBerge's work and, and lucid dreaming and um, you know, all the different applications and the science that had been done at that time. And when I learned about this, I just had a moment where I was in awe and I was so fascinated by all the possibilities that come with lucid dreaming. It just opens up so many more doors and pathways for harnessing more health and happiness. And, you know, of course, at the time I I was studying psychology and and the cognitive sciences, and um, I was specializing, starting to specialize a little bit more in health psychology, so mind-body health. So uh, there's a lot of different ways that uh, I could see that lucid dreaming could help those, those areas that I was already interested in. So I ended up uh, going to graduate school, but you know, like a lot of curricula, you know, sleep and dream training for professionals, it's a little bit lacking. Um, you do get the base training uh, in the foundations that if you wanted to specialize in those areas, you easily could. But uh, what I ended up doing at the time was I, I sought out um, mentorship from the Lucidity Institute. So I originally attended their program on scholarship in 2007. And then I, I just kept going back and growing with uh, Dr. LaBerge and uh, his organization to the point where I began co-teaching with him and conducting research on how to maximize lucid dream induction. We published a study together. Um, we had a lot of experience with uh, the series of induction devices he's developed over the years. So those of you might be familiar with um, induction devices might know them as like the Nova Dreamer. Uh, more recently, the, the Lucy Q he's been working on. Um, and, and we ended up publishing a, a study together in 2018 um, based on some research he'd been doing for many years, actually. But um, we were able to look at a larger group and uh, test a galantamine, which is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that enhances memory, uh, intensifies REM sleep. These are conditions that are uh, conducive to, to lucid dreaming. And 
uh, it was very clear from uh, his research that um, it, it substantially has a strong effect on um, helping people have lucid dreams when that's combined with uh, all the different induction skills that we already know work to help people lucid dream. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I remember very clearly in, in both the programs I attended, in fact, all three of them, come to think of it, where I was part of that study, where, where I remember very clearly one night, you know, obviously, uh, I think it was a double blind study, right? So one night, zero milligrams, mm-hmm. one night, milligrams, one night, eight milligrams. And, and I, for one, I mean, could totally tell when I had either the placebo. So I was part of that study. So it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. And we did it with our mutual friend, uh, Ben Barrett, who is a neuroscientist now at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I believe. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yes, and he, he helped us with our analyses and getting it published, so he was involved as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, gosh, I mean, so with that as a background, um, share a little bit with us about uh, your continuing research with Lucidity. I mean, do you guys have other um, projects on the works, other studies that are underway? Mm, there's always a lot of different directions to go. Um, some of the things you know that Dr. Leberge is focusing right on right now is you know the development of the the software for the uh, most recent induction device. Um, and I, I think he has several other collaborations that I'm entertaining um, getting involved with. And I think a lot of it is related to some of the the basic science on on lucid dreaming. You know, we don't really have strongly validated measures to to study lucid dreaming yet. And it's a big, um, you know, impediment to to the field. You know, we don't really know all the different ways that people become lucid or different levels of lucidity. We don't have a lot of qualitative measures to study the state. So that's kind of the thing that we've been talking about more recently. And, you know, we have a lot of data from all the years that Dr. Leberge has um, been doing this work that, you know, it, it needs to be analyzed. And, you know, we're always looking for people to collaborate with and to get help with that. Yeah. And, and for some of the scientific nerds in our community, you know, I mean, um, the kind of phenomenological aspect of it, the qualitative aspect, I'm sure, is one of the things that makes establishing um, any kind of rigorous metric challenging. And so are, are there... Are there other ways that you guys are exploring this? I mean, are you, are you doing thing with, uh, things with imaging? And I know there's studies that Stephen has certainly done with EEGs and the like, but you guys have that luxury of actually doing imaging. Well, not me necessarily, because, you know, I'm not with a neuroscience lab right now, but I'm certain that if you get to have Dr. LeBerge on the show, he could kind of talk to you about that. And uh, Dr. Baird is also another really good person to talk to you about that. They've been doing some studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I think you're aware of that, if I'm if I'm correct. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had, you know, I've worked with Richie and his people on it in the uh, um, Melanie, who's working with Giulio Tononi, you know, they're doing, mm-hmm. they're doing this really compelling ongoing study um, that really implicates lucidity in the deep dreamless state. And so I've had a little bit of that. And so, I mean, whenever, if and when that's substantiated, I think that will be as revolutionary as when Keith Hearn and, and Stephen were able to um, verify the authenticity of lucid dreaming itself. So, I mean, in short, it's like really cool, all the stuff that's happening, but it's flying pretty mm-hmm. far below the radar, wouldn't you say, still? 
Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of hurdles to, to overcome, but it's worth it. You know, I think from a lot of the anecdotal evidence and just theoretically how it aligns with, you know, things that we already kind of know, know work in, in psychotherapy, for example, you know, it's, it's a worthy candidate to, to explore and try to get funding for. Um, my interest, it hasn't necessarily been recently um, as far as like brain imaging, but more on the therapeutic aspects. And so a lot of my work really has been more focused clinically. Um, and you know what you see in the, the research on, on lucid dreaming therapy, um, this is where you of course use lucid dreaming in a, a therapeutic context. Um, it's, it's, there's not a lot of evidence for it, actually. We don't really see controlled studies showing that it works much better than anything else. And there's a lot of flaws in the study. And so my interest area at this point is, uh, case studies and, you know, trying to find ways to teach other professionals, um, and, you know, publish on cases that can show, Hey, this is how it's done. This is how you make it work in a practical sense. Uh, this is how it makes sense, uh, theoretically. And I think that's something that could could be a really good contribution to helping the field along. Yeah, totally. So, so tell our listeners more, because I'm sure uh, many folks are, are not even aware of the idea of lucid dream therapy. Like, you know, how does it work? Uh, who's it for? Are there contraindications? So, so tell us a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it's novel therapy. Uh, like I said, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for it, but the great thing about it is that it's easily integrated with the standard evidence-based interventions in psychotherapy that we already know work for most people in most situations. So, uh, and it, it's, it's also broadly applicable to a lot of different things. So that can range from nightmares to trauma and abuse histories, um, to those with combat experience, depression, anxiety, and even just everyday problems, you know, if you have inner conflicts or emotions that you're grappling with day to day, you can use the lucid dream state to explore these more intentionally uh, to facilitate uh, psychologically integrative or healing experiences, more introspection, growth. Um, you know, the fantastic thing about lucid dreaming is that when you become lucid in a dream, uh, well, you know it's a dream, so therefore you know that you're safe. And you, safety, it's one of the most critical components for people to grow as individuals. So in the lucid dream state, you know, you can't be hurt. There aren't going to be any real world consequences to the things that you do, whether that's physically or socially or emotionally. Uh, so you're safe to explore things in new and different ways. Um, and, you know, this really opens up a sense of freedom for people. And that, that really is one of the main benefits. You have freer access to experiences in the lucid dreaming state, uh, freer access to be who you truly are, uh, discover yourself, discover your identity, and you can explore experiences that are personally meaningful to you because the dream state is boundless. You can experience anything that you wish just through expectation and intention while you're in the lucid dream state. And, you know, dreams are they're wonderful for psychotherapy because a lot of things that are important for therapeutic growth come up in therapy. So these could be repressed emotions, repressed memories. These are things that people 
rightfully so, have psychological defenses about. So they don't necessarily come up that easily in talk therapy. But if you're integrating dreams in uh, more uh, unconscious realms, then you know it's, it's just a fantastic territory, very fruitful for, for growth. And when you're in the lucid state and you know you have that heightened sense of safety and freedom, the wonderful thing about it is you can work on developing your psychological flexibility. So that means being more flexible and adaptive as far as how you relate with yourself, the world, other people, um, how you regulate your emotions, your your thinking patterns, how you direct your attention, your, your drives, your actions. So you can learn how to uh, be and relate in, in new and different ways that can be much more helpful and help you get unstuck from from patterns that may be impeding some of your some of your growth. So there's just a lot that um, can come from exploring lucid dreaming in a therapeutic context. You know, one of the other wonderful things is that when you know you're in a dream and you're safe, you can adopt a model of self-integration. So this is where we don't just see the things in our dreams as something separate from us or outside of us or representing something in the real world, but we take ownership of it. We see the things in our dreams as representing something within ourselves, perhaps something that needs healing or something that's been wounded or something that needs our attention in some sort of way. And so it's just a really wonderful way to form a deeper connection between self and other that can be really healing and therapeutic and help a lot of people in their recovery. Yeah, that's really well said. And oh my gosh, did you hit on some um, incredible points there? I mean, the first thing that came to mind was you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Donald Winnicott. I'm sure you're familiar with him, the object relations theory. He talks so beautifully on about holding environments. And so what you said there, in terms of uh, really the dream being this kind of holding environment. So Winnicott's, um, one of his work, the principal contributions, was this idea that if the proper nurturing environment is there, um, you could say almost um, typically, or archetypically, um, gestation in the womb, growth and development occurs quite quite beautifully. Um, and as we're born, if we have that same type of holding environment, we grow and develop properly. And if we don't, problems arise. And, and what I do, Kristen, is on the other end, you know, with my work on death and dying, I apply the same tennis in a kind of midwifery principle towards the end of life. The very best thing you can do when someone dies is, is actually create this kind of um, holding environment. But I think what you said here cannot be overstated, that the, the dreamscape can provide this type of um, psychological holding environment where, where, in fact, people can feel held, they can relax, and therefore um, work with otherwise um, toward or difficult states of mind you know, towards resolution. Mm -hmm. And also something you said there that struck me, you know, years and years ago, um, not as far back as when LSD was still legal but things like ecstasy um several decades ago you know as you know psychiatrists were actually using it mm -hmm. clinically legally as a way to drop boundaries and, and i remember taking it in that capacity and i found it to be really a wonderful supplement to um, dropping inhibitions and, and opening and what the dream state does is is we both well know is it, it creates that same type of arena where um, we can explore these, you know, levels of uh, um, inhibition are dropped, 
and we have access to previously, uh, you know, or, or I should say, relatively inaccessible or difficult. Mm -hmm. So the last thing that you said also really struck me. It struck me as this idea of developing flexibility, and that to me is is beautiful play on, you know, my transition from lucid dreaming to dream yoga, um, and it plays on the word yoga in terms of like the, you know, the idea of stretching, and so mm -hmm. I often reference the jingle when I'm teaching, you know, blessed are the flexible for they are never bent out of shape, right? And so, <laughs> so we develop this kind of pliability, this malleability um, in relationship to the contents of our mind, because certainly in my experience, both experientially and doctrinally, one of the um, biggest problems we have, whether we know it or not, is, you know, kind of reifying, solidifying the contents of our mind. Mm -hmm. Having solidified, ossified even as we get older, the more ossified we get, ossified levels of identity, feeling that we're somehow victims or somehow stuck in, in poverty states of mind. And, and so what I thought you said about the flexibility that's developed with lucid dream therapy is also extremely um, provocative. So, so are there other applications? Like for instance, can you give us an example? A, a lot of people um, struggle with nightmares, of course. A lot of people um, mm. struggle things like insomnia, are, are you able to share with us ways that lucid dream therapy can be worked for, uh, applied for one or both of those very common um, conditions? Well, yeah, I mean, nightmares, you know, that's a very clear, direct application of lucid dreaming. Um, you know, typically in nightmares, we tend to have either a flight, fright, or, you know, freeze response, you know, either avoid and try to run away or fighting with these figures or um, we kind of don't really know what to do. We get paralyzed. We, we do nothing. But what lucidity does is it empowers the dreamer to not just try to avoid these experiences, but to form a, a deeper level of engagement with whatever aspect of the nightmare, um, uh, whatever aspect of the self that this nightmare kind of symbolizes. And so typically, you know, that takes um, uh, facing, you know, if you're in a nightmare, whether you're being chased or, you know, about to get killed or something, and uh, trying to have um, a friendly dialogue, um, talk to the figure, try to express compassion, do something a little bit creative and, and different, see if there's a way that you can try to understand uh, what the nightmare actually means in real time. And what often happens in these kinds of dreams is that there's this uh, interplay of the images with the lucidity that can be really therapeutic. You know, these figures can transform into something that all of a sudden reveals the, the meaning to the dreamer or enhances their insight in some sort of way. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of work with people that have um, like abuse history, so you know, it could be physical or sexual or emotional or all three. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work with active duty military and veterans that, that have combat experiences. And you know, one of the really cool things to see is, well, first let me say, you know, that there are treatments already for nightmares. Um, one of them's a drug. It's a it's an alpha blocker called prazosin. Uh, typically, that's that's only prescribed for. Um, individuals that are pretty severe like their nightmares are so bad that they're they're not getting any sleep and often it's people that have you know had combat experiences things like that um or just been in war-torn areas um 
And the other option is something called imagery rehearsal therapy. So um, this is where you sort of go back into the dream that you had with a therapist. You imagine yourself back there, but you imagine changing the outcome to something different, more therapeutic. Um, but what lucid dreaming you know, does is it makes that model for relating and changing dream content a lot more flexible, a lot more adaptive for individuals. And what I often see with, um, well, let me use a soldier, for example, that I've, I've worked with. Um, if you try to do just standard imagery rehearsal therapy, tell them, well, what would you do differently in your dreams? You know, uh, let's change the outcome. They can't do it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're still under that same mental model of the world in that they're not safe. Uh, they have a duty, for example, to you know, be there for their, uh, you know, their other Marines uh, or to serve or, um, you know, they, you know, there's somebody hurting or in their dream. They have to make sure they tend to them. They're stuck in these models of the world that see the world as real. But yeah. what giving a uh, model of lucidity does it, is it opens them up completely like, I could take a step back and I could look at this differently. I'm much more free and there's many more creative responses that I can explore in the dream state. And one of the important ones with that is that they can start to see the dream images, not as something bad that has happened to them in the past or someone they knew that died, for example, but they see it as a part of themselves. So it's no longer this helpless thing that's like outside of them that they really can't do anything about. Now they can take ownership for it. They can take responsibility for it. And they could see it as something within themselves that might need healing and use these standard lucid dreaming therapy techniques that we know foster self-integration. So that could be engaging with the figure, expressing compassion, having a friendly dialogue, trying to uh, find meaning or insight by talking to these figures. And it's just really interesting to see how lucidity opens up so many more pathways for people to to grow beyond some of those more rigid models of the world that have kept them stuck in, in suffering for so long. Yeah, that's really, really well said. And, and this idea of rigid models, I mean, really kind of comes down to the whole thing, because I, I don't think it can be overstated, Kristen, that this 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 issue of solidification, reification, certainly in the wisdom traditions, you know, um, especially in Buddhism, I mean, reification is is the whole shebang. I mean, we, we suffer in direct proportion to how solidly we take the contents of our mind and our reality. And so for me, gosh, what you said is just so spot on that what the dream can do is it can de-reify. It, it, it can soften this otherwise ossified relationship to the contents of mind and therefore you know, profoundly alter one's relationship to it. And so what, what, what came to my mind is very often when I, you know, as a meditation instructor, um, we work a lot as meditation instructors with sometimes difficult issues, and and oftentimes it borders on psychological um, concerns. But one of the things that that I often share with my meditation students, and I think has direct applicability to the dream state, is um, fundamentally learn how to love your mind, because uh, in relation to daytime meditation, you know, thoughts. Thoughts are just the children of your mind. And uh, you could say at night, dreams are just the children of your mind. And unless you're a pretty whacked out parent, you know, you're not going to strangle your kids. You're not going to body slam them to the ground. But we tend to do that. We don't have this kind of loving relationship to the contents of of, of 
my mind. And so what I hear when you're talking about these forms of dream therapy, which is really beautiful, is it's just it's a, a nocturnal way to apply that same maxim that love the contents of your mind as they express themselves in the dream state, realize they are the children of your mind. And, and really, especially with unwanted experience, um, like as they manifest in the dream state, for me, this slides under the, the rubric of what I you know, the transforming obstacles and opportunities that if we relate to the nightmare situation in this kind of alchemical or, or opportunistic way, we realize that what these unwanted experiences, um, these nightmares are actually presenting to us are in fact exactly what you're saying, opportunities for integration. Because when we throw part of ourselves away, which is what we do all the time when we are unable to digest and metabolize um, experience completely, completely. Well, when we throw that experience away, where does it go? I mean, out of sight does not mean out of mind. Out of sight in this case means into the unconscious mind. And so in my experience, when you have a nightmare, these rejected disenfranchised as aspects of yourself are, are in a certain way, and I, Stephen writes about this very beautifully, Mm -hmm. They're coming back in a certain sense. They're calling back for integration, for love, for in, you know even individuation. So when you talk about this in the context of in the context of um, therapy in the nocturnal arena, I mean I just find that a beautiful, natural extension of these foundational tenets. I mean, doesn't that speak to you? Does it make sense? Yeah, and I, I love hearing your perspective because you use more of the Eastern language and it, it, it all kind of integrates with some of my training in science and psychology. And, you know, I think it just integrates really beautifully and I, I love it. It's, it's, it's really great to talk to you, actually. No, no, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And so, you know, another way to say this, and then I'll turn it back to you, is that you know, what defines a non-lucid dream in many ways is we're too close to the dream. We, we actually get sucked into the dream. We lose any sense of perspective or awareness. And by implication, um, we reify the dream and take it to be real. And so I often find um, the same problem that defines non-lucidity in the nocturnal dream arena is um, also reiterated in, in my life when I often have problems um, that remain intractable because I'm too close to them. I'm, I'm non-lucid to the problem. I'm mm -hmm. lost in the problem. And so by, and, and I love this idea of um, what I've been talking about frequently in the nightclub arena, this foundational tenet for me of bidirectionality, you know, that what you do in the waking state affects the dream state, what you do in the dream state with therapies like this can mm -hmm. absolutely affect what we do in the daytime arena. And I have absolutely found that as my proficiency and lucidity at night takes place, I bring that same level of proficiency, i.e. perspective, to my waking state. And so contents of mind that would previously have sucked me in, that I would have reified, that I would have ossified, and therefore suffered in direct proportion to that, that perspective that is generated in my nighttime um, lucidity now kind of pings and pops up into my daytime mind to actually wake me up to the contents of my experience during the day. And I think it's one of the most beautiful, compelling aspects of, of lucid dreaming is this kind of bi-directional or kind of cross-pollination that we can do between these two mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree. And there definitely are those parallels, you know, where we are not lucid in, in life and we're too close to things and we can't gain enough distance and perspective so we know how to respond uh, as effectively as possible. But that's that's the beauty of dreaming and lucid dreaming kind of holds up um, a mirror to your blind spot. So it helps you take that step back. It helps you be more objective. And you can look at parts of yourself that might be a little bit difficult, but within that nurturing, holding environment where you can start to break free and, you know, test out these new ways of, of being um, with whatever, whatever challenges that you're confronting. And it's interesting when you get that kind of practice and then you see sort of similar patterns in your waking life that you can actually pull from what you learned there and you can you feel more confident more more able to to implement some of those new more healthier more adaptive behaviors in in the waking state and you know those practices whether they're done in the lucid dream state or you're trying to be lucid in your your waking life they, they integrate very beautifully and they augment and enhance each other it's it's that's that's the that's the whole of the practice that's the point of it you know we want to use um lucidity to not just enhance um, our, ourselves in our, our dream states, but also in our, our waking lives as well. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, I, I often talk, uh, um, Tristan, about, um, you know, the wisdom traditions, they, they talk about, um, sometimes it's called twilight language, um, sometimes goes by the term dakiniko, but, but the idea is there, there are multiple ways of, of reading um, terminologies, um, especially in my experience with the whole lucid dreaming project, and for instance, lucidity, uh, you know, really lucidity is just a code word for awareness. And so if there's one, I'm curious to see if, if this resonates with your experience, if there's one kind of curative ingredient to any psycho, even, even spiritual pathology, it is in fact awareness. Um, when you shine the light of awareness onto almost anything, almost by definition is going to be curative. And so um, I think this completely applies in this arena. And so have you, uh, if you are comfortable with it, have you had personal dreams or personal experiences that you can share with us where you've been able to apply some of these very tenets into your own life? Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, and you're talking about um, sort of therapeutic lucid dreams that I've had or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dreams mm -hmm. where you able to resolve certain issues, certain so-called real-world issues. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, maybe more emotional one. I don't think I've shared this one publicly in a while. Um, it was one where I, I kept having a, a dream a while back a, about somebody that I had a difficult relationship with, and you know, I, I felt hurt and, and mistreated, and you know, they kept popping up in, in my dreams, and you know, I wanted to move on and. Um, so, you know, I, I set my mind to, okay, next time I see that person, I'm, I'm going to know I'm dreaming and I'm going to try to work on this and let go of whatever it is I'm, I'm holding on to. And, uh, sure enough, the next time it happened, uh, they were, they were walking up to my apartment. And, um, when I, when I saw him, uh, I immediately knew it was a dream. So I, I ran right up to him. And, and this is totally different from my non-lucid dreams where I'm trying to like run away or hide or, or not be seen, you know, and I, I grabbed his hand and I, I looked him right in the eyes and it was just a moment where, you know, you just sort of have to look within yourself and, and pull from deep within your heart and, and speak from the heart and, 
And that was exactly what I did. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think I directly asked the dream, you know, how can I integrate this? How can I let this go? You know, I tried to express forgiveness of myself and him. And um, the coolest thing was that he disappeared in my hands as I was talking. And I began, to, I began to float up in the air and I started pulsating with this buzzing ecstatic energy. It felt like ecstasy. It was so euphoric. It was amazing. So I'm sort of uh, somersaulting slowly toward the ceiling and I'm, tr- I'm just watching myself in this state, you know, trying not to like break the, chan- the trance, right? And uh, I get to the ceiling and I'm, I'm hanging upside down by the ceiling, just sort of effervescing in this energy. It was, it was wonderful. And I was uh hanging there and I, I saw an image of a, a bat in my in like my mind's eye <laughs> almost like a hypnagogic image but it wasn't one um just kind of looked like one because I was already dreaming you know so and at the time I thought that that's weird why am I seeing a bat right now and um you know when I woke up I uh I realized I was hanging upside down from the ceiling like a bat <laughs> myself which is really interesting to think about the significance there and you know what bats are doing when they're they're roosting and um after that dream I, I stopped having those you could, you could call them nightmares I was distressed by them but you know it kind of stopped and um you know it was something that that definitely felt healing and, and integrative in a way and it was one of those dreams that you know it, it, it tends to kind of stick with you you'll always like remember it and um it's, it's something that kind of helps me you know or guides me, you know, in other dreams when, you know, I'm looking for integration or I'm looking for healing, you know, it's something that I can always pull from and remember to, to help me have more of those experiences. Yeah. Gosh, what a great story. So Kristen, when you do this, I'm curious how you incubate these types of dreams. I mean, do they come to you somewhat serendipitously because of the atmosphere that you may be in um, cognitively, or do you make official, um, incubation strategies or are, are there ways that you can cultivate this so that you can work with it more directly? Yeah, well, I mean, the one I'm talking about there and often the ones that I, I do have more of these integrative experiences, um, they tend to have a recurring quality. So I keep having the same kind of bad dream over and over. And so I know I can expect to have that in the future. So I'm not really doing much incubating at all. I, I know I'm going to have that dream. But I think where you're kind of leading is, well, how am I incubating like an intention to become lucid and have this self-integrative experience? And, you know, that's that's easily done through mild strategies. So, you know, identifying the dream sign and setting your mind, OK, next time I see that dream sign or that person or that thing or I'm in that place, I'm going to remember I'm dreaming. And you can rehearse setting those intentions in a number of different ways. You could say it in words to yourself. You could write down um, rescripted versions of your dreams as if you got lucid in, in your dream journal. Um, you can rehearse it in your imagination before you go to sleep. And so there's different ways that you can kind of optimize your mindset so that the next time it happens, you can become lucid. And uh, those are actually some of the, the lucid dreams that I tend to have a lot of success with, um, just because you know you can expect them you know you're going to have that dream sign again so yeah that's one of the great gifts of, of having recurrent dreams and, and parenthetically you know Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche um, wrote uh, the Tibetan Yogi's Experience um, and I think there's some credibility I'm not entirely sure it's true especially with recurrent dreams that are kind of born from PTSD types of events but he, he playfully says that recurrent dreams are highly suggestive that you know you're not a good listener right and so that <laughs> 
when the message is completely um, delivered, the recurrent dream um, stops. And again, I, I I think there's some credibility to that. I think that's partly true, but mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, it's uh, unconditionally true because I think when some of these really deep issues are, you can almost say somat- somatically lodged, like with like with the people that you're working with, these veterans who have super intensive traumatic experiences that are just so deeply lodged into their bodies. Um, I'm not sure that tenet applies, but I want to ask you, I mean, do you, do you find that when you're working with night terrors, nightmares of these extreme varieties, the people that have been so deeply traumatized, um, you find these same type of um, kind of mm. tips and apply, or are we dealing with a different beast here altogether, one that would require, in fact, trauma specialists and the like? I mean, what? how do you manage people that, that present with these more um, extreme states mm-hmm. well um yeah I, I agree with you maybe partial credit to um the person who's, who said you're not listening very well but not necessarily applicable to you know nightmares of the extreme variety that i'm kind of talking about um you know that come from war-torn environments or, or combat experiences because those are extreme you know it's not that they're not good listeners it's it's that they um they're human beings, you know, when you have those kinds of experiences, that's how the psyche and the spirit's going to respond. It's, it's going to get stuck. It's going to get lodged. Um, And, you know, I, I, of course, you know, when, you know, there's that level of acuity and you have a, um, a diagnosis of, of PTSD, then that should require, you know, the help of trauma specialists. But, you know, I, I don't want to just um, reserve that only for, you know, psychological treatment providers, because I think a lot of people have self-healing capacities in themselves, and they can easily apply some of these techniques to help them. Um, but, you know, in, in my experience, you know, what I, what I find is that People might be able to get lucid and they might be able to change the dream for a little, you know, a little bit better, feel a little more empowered. But there's always more growth that could happen. Um, And you really do need the guidance of of a trained clinical therapist to kind of help you with that and to implement strategies and interventions that we already know work to foster self-healing and and growth. Um, You know, it's kind of similar to, you know, these days they do a lot of pop-up clinics for ketamine um, administration for like depression and things, but you know, they, they don't, they don't really integrate it with psychotherapy. You know, it's not ketamine assisted psychotherapy. They just give the ketamine, you know, it's kind of like saying here, just have some lucid dreams and expect to get better. Uh, Maybe you'll get a little bit better, but it's not necessarily optimal. It's what is optimal is to sort of combine it with that nurturing or holding environment. Like we were talking about, so you can actually facilitate greater therapeutic growth because most people, they just, they don't have the, the skills or the knowledge to really be able to do that for themselves. And even just being able to do that kind of work on yourself without the help of like a healer, healing practitioner, it's difficult because we can't see our own stuff very clearly. Even for myself, you know, I, you know, I'm pretty good at understanding, you know, how the, the, you know, therapeutic you know, aspects of lucid dreaming works, but it's always better for me to talk to someone else that knows about lucid dreaming to help me see better what, how I could be using those states to, to foster healing and growth. Yeah, that's really well said because, you know, blind spots are by definition blind, they're intractable. And so it was actually, you, you started to answer a question that I was scribbling to ask you, and that is that, you know, I, I've always maintained with some caveats that 
that lucid dreaming really could um, represent the pedagogy of the future because it just has so much potential um, for for purposes of learning, for integration, for spiritual growth. I mean, really, the the sky's the limit. The the sky of the mind is the limit. And so the question I was going to ask you that you kind of uh, addressed here, but I still want to put it forth to you regardless, is that um, would it in fact be too extreme to go so far as to assert that any treatment that one could, a therapy that one could um, do or benefit from during the day could eventually be done in the context of their lucid dreams? Yeah, I mean, definitely, because the dream state, it's a simulation of our, our waking environment. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of the essence of, of lucid dreaming therapy. We're not really doing all that much new or different with lucid dreaming therapy. We're kind of using everything we already do in the waking state and now just applying that to the dream world. And then we see that bi-directionality happen where um, the dreaming and the waking worlds kind of enhance each other. Um, does that kind of make sense or answer your question a little bit? Exactly. And, then, and I also think it's, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. I think one of the, the benefits that you would get in, in the nighttime arena is a sense of empowerment when when you realize you can take on both these roles. I mean, there's so, there's so many implications here, Chris, and it's kind of mind-boggling because yeah, it's awesome. you know, when, the, when your male friend appeared in your dream, you know, was that in fact some kind of projection of his um, mind stream, which I think is pretty questionable, or more likely that was a, a you know, that form was arising in the content of your own mind. It's, it's, so it's almost like, you know, parts of you are teaching parts of other you. And yeah. this kind of empowerment that you can have both as the, the um, patient, so to speak, the client, and, you know, the embodiment of the person or issue that you might having a, be having an issue with, those both become represented in the arena of your own mind. And to me, Kristen, this is really compelling stuff because, you know, as you know, in, in Buddhism, fundamentally, when we talk about things like non-duality, well, what does that really mean? That's such a kind of spiritual rhetorical term. I think this is one of the things that it means is that yeah. fundamentally when you're dealing with a person, and this is what, Steve, you know, our dear friend Stephen LaBerge talks about, why, why therapy can be so bloody effective because when you're engaged, uh, in daytime or nighttime therapy, the physical pres presence of the person really, you know, unless they're like 400 pounds and they're like laying on top of you, the physical presence is not the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is the relationship you have to that presence. And therefore, when you're in therapy, the person doesn't have to be there. They just have to appear to you phenomenally. They just have to appear to you in your mind. Exactly. And in exactly the same way, I mean, never is the phenomenal appearance more I'm clear um, and lucid in both senses of the word and when you're having that phenomenal appearance in the lucid dreaming state. And so for me, this is what carries extra benefit because when you're working with uh, these presentations in the mind state, um, you realize most directly that you are working your stuff and you have the opportunity to, to realize I am not the victim of circumstance. I'm the victim of my projections, my imputations, my reifications. And so when you reveal that in the dream state, this is this is an added benny that, in my opinion, in some ways makes it even more efficacious than what you, you can do in traditional daytime talk therapy. Right, exactly. It adds a lot to it. it. And it's not just the empowerment or like the evocative realism or being able to, you know, encounter remote memories or feelings or things that are repressed. Uh, 
lucid dreaming, it's really fun for most people. And that's something that's been shown in the research often is that it's associated with positive emotion over and over again. Um, you know, it can be really amusing and interesting and intriguing for people. And this is really relevant for the field of psychology because you know what? Treatment engagement and dropout rates in therapy, it's a big deal. A lot of people don't find therapy fun, and for good reason. It's not really fun, but this right. is something that can be intrinsically reinforcing for a lot of people. I have a story about this, actually. So I was um, a postdoc, and I was doing um, a group on lucid dreaming therapy for was a severe mental illness population. It was in an outpatient setting, so they were fairly stable. Uh, but we we had um, we had a, a client who um, she was appropriate for a, a therapy called dialectical therapy, uh, behavioral therapy. And this is based on mindfulness, and it's for people who are like, chronically suicidal or they hurt hurt themselves a lot. And she refused to do it. She said, "No, I'm not going to do it. I've been there, done that. I don't like it. I hate mindfulness." And she, she just didn't want to do it. But I and group therapy was one of the main things besides medication management that we are offering at our clinic. So we didn't really know what to do with her. So when I started the lucid dreaming group, all of a sudden she goes, oh, I want to do that. And she got engaged, you know, she was kind of quiet in the group. Um, but she when we got to the part where I was teaching them about wild techniques and how mindfulness meditation can help you lucid dream, um, how it can help you be more aware and respond more creatively, she, she suddenly was able to engage in mindfulness meditation. She goes, wait a minute, you mean that mindfulness can help me lucid dream better? And I said, yes. And she, she didn't say anything, but then she started reporting on lucid dreams. So that was just a fantastic thing that something like dreams and lucidity can motivate someone to engage in a therapy that we know can help them. It's just such something that's so powerful. And I think it's something that speaks on a really deep level to a lot of people. And I just can't wait to see it come a little bit more to fore in the field of psychology. And I'm aghast that it's like 2019 and it just hasn't really been touched on yet. Um, just looking forward to seeing that more. No kidding. Can you define for our, our listeners real quick, you, you tossed out the word WILD, the acronym, can you define for them? Some of our listeners may not know what that refers to. Right. So uh, that refers to awake-initiated lucid dreams. So uh, typically in most lucid dreams, you know, you're going about in some sort of non-lucid dream situation and then suddenly you remember that you're dreaming. But a wild type of dream, it differs from this because what you do is you typically you either wake up from a dream and go right back into a dream fully lucid. Or you might interrupt your sleep and then go back to sleep in the early morning hours and you use like meditation, concentration, relaxation strategies to help you fall asleep, but while staying fully aware of your state of consciousness. So you're basically lucid as soon as you begin to dream. And it's a really fascinating experience. Um, often you get pulled directly into a dream. Uh, or you might start dreaming that you're in your bedroom trying to fall asleep. And so you can kind of get lifted that way by, by recognizing that you're, you're no longer in your, your physical bedroom. Um, it's, it's 
a method of more direct entry into the lucid dream state. It's actually really interesting for people to explore that are having trouble with um, the perspective memory strategies of remembering to get lucid later in the night. Then they can actually wake themselves up in the middle of the night and say, okay, I'm going to fall asleep while staying conscious. And um, they could have a wake-initiated lucid dream, which, which has a, a lot of the same value as, as, our, as the traditional uh, lucid dreams people tend to think about. Yeah, and I think the acronym is sometimes quite apt because there are times when it can be quite wild. You know, I, I, I groove on these states because for me, they're, they're a wonderful way to explore, you know, the hypagogic descent, how, how, especially the latter stages, as you know, stage three and four, where I find it just so incredibly fascinating to watch my thoughts morph into thought image amalgamations, which is like a previous day, how that morphs into a micro dreamlet, and then mm -hmm. how some I use the word inflation here because I think it ties into the subtle winds of the subtle body, how then that, that little dreamlet can then further inflate into a, a, a full-blown wake-initiated lucid dream. And, and to me, I just find it really incredibly interesting and quite wild because you can see, in this case, I know, you know, as we both know, it's called lucid solipsism, how, how thought creates reality at the level of the dream. And then we can get some intimation, I think, of how Thought obviously doesn't create reality in the waking state, even though some people still think that, but it most certainly affects and colors the waking state. And, and we can start to get a, a hint of that power by watching how it is that thoughts morph into images, morph into dreams. And so I also want to clarify very briefly with my listeners that the other type of dream that Kristen's alluding, alluding to is a usual, I think it's more common, um, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where people either through a dream sign or something triggers them to the fact that they're dreaming within a dream. That's called a dream-initiated lucid dream. Um, and so those are the two general overarching categories. You can either bring awareness with you from the waking state to the dream state, that's a wild, or you can trigger awareness when you're in the dreaming state, that's called a dialed or dream-initiated lucid dream. Um, and so let's get back. I mean, I'm so grooving on this lucid dream therapy uh, thing, Kristen, say <laughs> Are there certain people that are that are better candidates for lucid dream therapy than others? Yeah, I, I should answer that question. And um, now I'm remembering you did ask me a little bit about insomnia and if it could help with that. And I, I actually have um, a response for that, so maybe we could come back to that. But um, yeah, as, as far as a candidates, yeah, um, there definitely are. You know, well, typically in my practice, I, you know, when we we first meet with patients, we assess their sleep, and I always ask about dreams. I think a lot of clinicians forget to do that. It's an opportunity to to educate people, you know, about lucid dreaming therapy and tell them to think about their own dreams and bring them to to sessions. And you can usually gauge their interest. Um, so people that have an interest in dreams or they dream journal already or they recall their dreams a lot or they tell you that uh, their dreams are kind of intense or they have nightmares, that that's a, a sign that they would be um, someone really good to talk to um, about lucid dreaming therapy. Um, there's some other factors I think that would be um, important to consider. Um, you know, one is of course if, if they're having nightmares or they have trauma. Um, there's individuals who tend to be a little bit more closed off or they get kind of stuck in therapy. They don't know what to explore. They don't know what to look at. Um, their, their defense mechanisms, you know, they're a little bit too tight. And one way to help those kinds of individuals is to have them talk about their dreams. You know, it's been really interesting 
working with, you know, some trauma cases of mine, how they can't talk about their emotions, they can't open up, you ask them how they're doing, they say fine, but you get them to talk about themselves through the lens of their dreams, and all of a sudden, you know, a whole new world of themselves opens up, um, they're able to talk about emotions and, and memories, um, uh, there's something really safe about the distance we have, um, uh, psychologically, when we talk about ourselves through our dreams, and so, you know, if you, you kind of have people that, you know, are, are a little bit stuck, you know, pointing them in the direction of their dreams, that could be something really useful. Uh, what else is good? Uh, some people, they, especially people with depression, um, in depression, we, uh, we have REM sleep uh, in a way where it's more intensified. So a lot of people have more intense dreams. Um, they feel like they're dreaming a lot of the night when they have depression. And, you know, that has to do with, um, you know, the, the neurochemical balance um, uh, that has to do with uh, the depressive state and, and how that affects sleep. Now, those individuals could be really great for it. But, you know, who, who's really great for it is uh, people that decline medications. So if you take antidepressants, that kind of subdues the intensity of, of REM sleep. But some people, they, they don't want to do it, or maybe it's really not right for them. Um, and so their dreams, you know, they're, they're the perfect um, forum to, to really be able to explore things that are really important because they're just, they're so vivid, they're so intense, they're so highly recalled. Um, you know, these are people that you don't really have to do much to teach them how to lucid dream because they they have a lot of features that already make them really good candidates for for lucid dreaming therapy. Yeah, terrific. Gosh, that's so helpful. And so yeah, so let's definitely come back to the number one sleep disorder of which I think there are what now 107 or eight of these puppies. Um, insomnia. I mean, how can we? How, mm -hmm. how do you work with it? Um, is there any application for? Lucid dreaming in the realm of insomnia. Um, mm -hmm. you know, sure. Yeah. Um, so, well, the way I typically work with insomnia is through cognitive behavioral therapy um, or insomnia. And I, I think you talked about that a little bit with Tucker uh, in your interview with him. Am I right about that? Right. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you teach people how to. Um, uh, to to work with certain thinking patterns or behaviors that that interfere with sleep, but lucid dreaming it, it could have some seemingly more um, indirect applications for insomnia. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. In insomnia, you tend to um, get stuck in a negative view of being awake during the night. So you can't sleep or you wake up in the middle of the night and you know it just feels like this terrible thing. You know, you worry about if you're gonna be tired the next day or if you're gonna fall back asleep. You sort of have this negative worldview at the time. And this is a, a model, uh, again, you know, where our thoughts shape our reality. It activates our nervous system. So it worsens our insomnia. It makes it more difficult to fall asleep. It perpetuates our insomnia. Uh, but if you're teaching lucid dreaming kind of side by side with insomnia, there's, there's a lot of advantages. So for one, lucid dreaming, it's, it's a positive experience for most people. It's something they look forward to. And two, wakefulness during the night is very conducive to lucid dreaming. Uh, we know that they're associated together. So, wow, all of a sudden, these 
moments where you're awake during the night, they're no longer these terrible things that plague you. Now they can be framed as opportunities for dream work, for healing work, for exploring pleasure and play through dreaming. Uh, one of the um, uh, recommendations for if you can't sleep during the night, is actually get out of bed, do a little bit of reading, and then go back to bed when you feel sleepy. And you know the reason for that is because we spend all this time awake in bed, we start to condition ourselves to be fearful of the bed, and it makes it a lot harder to fall asleep. But that can easily be integrated with one of the standard uh, methods to help induce lucid, to induce lucid dreams, and that's the wake back to bed or, or sleep interruption method. And so you can kind of see those times as not like, oh man, I have to get out of bed, my bed, because I'm not sleeping and it's cold and uncomfortable outside. But hey, I'm gonna go practice this skill, and when I go back to bed, I'm gonna have a much higher chance of lucid dreaming, which is really fantastic for some people. Now, a lot of lucid dreaming skills overlap with skills that help people sleep. So that's relaxation, that's meditation. Uh, if you're trying to have a, a wild, when you go back to sleep more toward the early morning hours, and this is when a lot of people have insomnia, you know, those skills, they, they really go together and it can help people, uh, if not fall back fully asleep, um, meditate in that state between waking and sleeping in the lighter stages of sleep, which also has, has applications to the, the sleep and dream yogas, I think. You know, there's, yes. you know, there's, there's a lot of research on um, how people with insomnia, you know, they subjectively report that they didn't get much sleep, but then you put them in a lab and, and they were sleeping much longer than they thought. So what is that? Uh, they, they call it sleep state misperception. So this is where you believe you're awake, but you're actually asleep. And, you know, this the people with insomnia, they, they kind of have this propensity for um, possibly developing more abilities in, in lucid sleep yoga because um, they believe that they're awake when they're not. So they're conscious of mentation or thinking when they're in the lighter stages of sleep. They tend to have more uh, miniature or micro arousals from sleep when they kind of go back to sleep um, pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, a lot of practices such as like yoga nidra where you're learning to keep your mind quiet and calm in that transitional state that people with insomnia could really benefit from and probably be really good at. Um, bringing lucidity with them into those stages and possibly even into deeper stages of sleep. So I think that the applications to insomnia, you know, they're not as direct, but when lucid dreaming and um, insomnia interventions, they're, they're taught by side by side, I think that they're, they can augment each other in some really interesting and, and unique ways. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, it's what I refer to as a family of collateral benefits. You know, they're not like officially targeted, but they come along for the ride and they can completely transform the way you relate to otherwise, you know, uncomfortable state of mind. So, so here's a question for you. You know, it's, it's really easy for, for people like you and I to sit on our soapboxes and, and, and preach, you know, to the stars about how incredible lucid dreaming is because obviously we both know it is incredible. But mm. let's talk a little bit about some of the shadow sides because, you know, I mean, wherever you find light, you will find shadows and, and something that has... You know, our mutual friend Ryan Hurd writes about this, that, that things that have this kind of power to eliminate um, also have shadow elements. And so have you ever tried lucid dream therapy, for example, and, and then somebody comes back and you go, whoa, I should not have done that or um, in your own experience. So, you know, first, 
that? Have you, are there candidates who are like, man, that should not have been tried? You know, mm-hmm. my bad. Sure. Um, and then mm-hmm. otherwise, what are some of the shadow elements so that we can at least have a, a more balanced approach to this otherwise amazing discipline? Mm-hmm. Well, I get your first question. What What did you What did you mean about the second, the, the shadow elements? Well, in general, so let's, start with, let's just start with the first one. So, mm-hmm. uh, any cases or any personal mm-hmm. experiences with people where you, you retrospectively said, "Whoa, lucid dreaming therapy may not have been the best thing." Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, n- n- the short answer is no, but there there have been cases where I've considered lucid dreaming therapy, and I said, no, it's not right for this person for this and this reason. And there's also been cases where I was a little bit concerned, maybe I shouldn't do lucid dreaming therapy with this person, and it turned out okay, uh, or it was helpful to them in some way. And you know, there's there's a lot of um, you know things that you know therapists could kind of consider when they're they're implementing you know lucid dreaming therapy. Um, you know, first of all, is it you know the first line of treatment or appropriate? And um, you know, there's those kinds of things that you want to consider, uh, but you don't want to completely rule out all vulnerable populations, you really want to evaluate on a case-by-case basis who's appropriate for it and who's not. And so something to consider are like acuity, you know, are they really in a place that they could be um, focusing on their dreams or do they need to focus a little bit more on real world things that are going to help them stabilize? Um, Another thing to consider is do they have reality testing impairments? you know, it could be possible that somebody, you know, with psychosis or who's abusing substances or they have high, high mental stress that lucid dreaming wouldn't be the best for. Because part of what makes lucid dreaming effective is that it has some uh, destabilizing features. It loosens our fixed ideas on the world so they can be replaced with other uh, more helpful models. But there might be some individuals where that's not necessarily helpful. Um, and so I, I had a case uh, one time, let me think about this a second, where, you know, offhand, it would have seemed like he would have been a really great um, uh, case for lucid dreaming therapy, like on paper, because he just had, um, you know, some difficult experiences like grief, you know, he lost someone that was really important to him and, you know, really wanted to see them again. And he had some insomnia too, and some sleep fragmentation and, you know, possibly, um, and, and also some vivid dreams. So we could have possibly used lucid dreaming to help him. But the problem was that he told me in one of our first sessions that he was confusing memories from his dreams with real life waking memories. And so he, his, you know, his sleep was so poorly consolidated that, you know, he was blurring, you know, the two realities together. And so lucid dreaming, you know, in my opinion, it, it wasn't indicated there. There, you know, were much more uh, effective first-line things that we could have done to help him process his grief, consolidate his sleep better. And when we did that, um, that confusion between waking and dreaming memories, they it, it got a lot better. So there, there was just uh, a little bit too much uh, risk for him decompensating and you know the benefit to to risk ratio for him it it just it wasn't um something that i thought would be good for him so so i didn't do it uh but i did have another case where i questioned the same thing because he he had a severe abuse history uh he's bipolar he had some alcohol dependence um severe trauma 
um, a diagnosis of like dissociative identity disorder when he uh, turned um, like 18 years old. And he had a history of violence and, and self-harm. So just, you know, a lot of risk factors here, but his nightmares were every single night. And so, you know, I, I kind of had to think, you know, is it appropriate for him? You know, are the dissociative qualities he tends to have, is that going to make him dissociate in the waking state and have that sort of dream and waking confusion where it might be dangerous? And my sense was no, because he hadn't been violent in a, a really long time. He was very motivated to stay safe. He had social support. He was pretty stable on, on medication. So it, it really seemed like the benefits outweighed the risks. And so I did proceed and just continued to, to monitor for any contraindications. And it, it seemed really helpful for him. Um, he was able to go back into his dreams and easily become lucid, free himself from recurring nightmares where he was getting like mutilated repeatedly. He he met his inner child in a dream and I was encouraging him to try to talk to him and you know express compassion. So it, it was something that beautifully facilitated um, the therapeutic process and you know I'm glad that I did it. Um, you know, I think it's it's a shame that you know you kind of hear that lucid dreaming shouldn't be used for psychologically unstable people and, and that is that's not true at all there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily stable that lucid dreaming can help um i think you know clinicians they, they just need better training and being able to evaluate and assess for that better so that you're not um restricting people from accessing services that could really help them and you're also not increasing any risk um unnecessarily for people where it, it wouldn't help yeah, boy, that's super. And you know, is like exactly where I was going to um, suggest that you know the dissociative disorders you mentioned, um, dissociative identity disorder, obviously formerly known as multiple personality disorder, mm -hmm. but there are other ones as well. I'm sure you're aware of derealization, depersonalization disorders. Mm -hmm. um, I think those become interesting. And what what I what flashed in my mind here, Kristen, is that just this week I interviewed. Um, cognitive neuroscientist I did a, a, a virtual reality study with. And one of the things that we didn't talk about but is very interesting in relationship to VR that I flashed on when you were talking about the individual who was conflating memories from the dream state with memories from um, mm -hmm. state is what they refer to in the VR business as alternative world syndrome, where you can spend so much time in, in VR that when you come out, you, you actually have a hard time um, constituting the reality that you're in, and you find yourself in, in Buddhist language, you find yourself in a kind of cognitive bardo, where you're not here, you're not there, and if you don't have the psychic infrastructure to handle that groundlessness, it can be uh, a little bit disconcerting because you've lost your ontological footing, um, mm -hmm. implies you lose your psychological footing, and when that's an extreme case, that's one definition of psychosis. Um, mm -hmm. So. I just wanted, you know, to bring out exactly what you were talking about, that, that while there are obviously so many remarkable benefits to this discipline, it's, it's not for everybody. Um, there are some, some shadow elements, and I, I'd like to frame it within this kind of um, spectrum of skillful means, this, you know, that yeah. not, there's no single, act, you know, the kind of single action bias tendency we all have. There, these particular strategies and whatnot have their bandwidth of applicability. And the most important thing is to understand that um, bandwidth, maybe um, keep it in that place and realize that if you extend it outside of that, then um, you kind of lose the potency of that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so any other, any other um, kind of 
precautions or shadow elements that you personally, I get, it sounds like you haven't had any of those personally, but any other things that you can share with us? I do think this is an important arena to discuss. And can, can you share a little more? What do you mean by shadow elements, like people that shouldn't do it or anything that we already? Yes, exactly. So at this point, it's not even um, lucid dream therapy per se. It's like lucid dreaming, period, because I know, um, I, I can tell you what I do in my own um, screening pro process, and I, I think Stephen does this with his. If, if people write to me and, and they're working under the auspices um, or working under a psychiatrist or, or a psychotherapist, I always recommend that if there's any question whatsoever, that they defer to the professionals, that they ask their, their counselor, their therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem here, of course, is a lot of them are not that inf well informed about lucid dreaming. But um, right. yeah. it's just the idea of not letting this incredible discipline kind of um, step down. I, I guess that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, sure. Um, well, again, beyond people that, you know, don't have a supportive infrastructure, or, you know, they're vulnerable in terms of like they're abusing psychedelic substances or they're under a high amount of stress. Um, you know, those are kinds, or you have like a family history of psychosis, you know, those might be things that might make you want to think twice or talk to a professional, um, you know, is lucid dreaming really right for me? Or if you have an intuition, like I'm actually getting a little bit of dream reality confusion here and you know is this something that I should be following and if you talk to a professional you're going to get one of two things you're going to get someone that doesn't really know what they talk they're talking about and they're going to say no don't do it it's not safe uh, or you're going to get somebody that might be a little more knowledgeable and they can try to help you understand you know what's really happening with you and what's right for you and let's say you are having some dream reality confusion they can help you understand if that's within the normal range of dream reality confusion for example let's say you occasionally believe a dream really happened until you think about it later and realize it, it didn't you know it, it was just a dream so um, you know I think that you know, we don't want to overemphasize that lucid dreaming is, is risky in any sense, because it, it really isn't. It's a natural state that everybody has. Even if you are practicing lucid dreaming, you're probably not going to be having all that many lucid dreams. Um, your access to the state, it's not going to be like you can you know, spend hours and hours a day like you do in the virtual reality world if you're into those kinds of technologies. So you're not necessarily going to be as prone to those kinds of syndromes like derealization or depersonalization. The risk really is ne negligible and minimal and the benefits are, are profound and, and huge. And so I just I really don't want to overemphasize that there are risks to this um, beyond what we've kind of talked about. Well, that's really beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of when uh, Father Thomas Keating was, was asked a question about some of the shadow elements with meditation. And, and, and after this individual, he gave his reply and this individual kept coming after him. And, and he, he fundamentally said, let me just put it this way. There are a lot more problems with not meditating than there is with meditating. Yes. Mm -hmm. I thought that was actually pretty good. You know, the, yeah. I mean, anything can be abused. You, you can hyperventilate. I mean, we need oxygen to, to breathe. Sure. Mm -hmm. We need water, but you can hyperhydrate. So, you know, we have to bring some modicum of common sense here. And mm -hmm. I also, you know, what I profess and what I'm writing about is um, the somewhat radical approach to lucidity that, you know, according to the wisdom traditions, as I've come to understand them, not only are lucid dreams safe, but I argue that lucid dreams are actually the natural type of dream and that yeah. we been enculturated, this is the 
third book I'm writing, we have been conditioned by the forces of the dark side, you know, phenomenological, biological, social, and cultural. Hmm. We have been conditioned into non-lucidity. And so not, a, not only is lucid dreaming healthy, I, I uh, argue that it's actually a natural type of dream. And that hmm. when we get lost in non-lucidity, that's just the byproduct of this kind of unconscious enculturation that we've been all victim to. Um, so before we um, close here, and I want to get a, just a couple of really practical things for you. One of the single biggest issues that we face in, in as lucid dreamers, um, I certainly face it as a teacher, and I'm sure you do as well, and we get it very commonly, um, questions from our nightclub members is, how to work with discouragement? Um, because these dreams are not, for some people, that easy to access. Um, and so I always like to talk to the professionals like you when someone approaches you and they're discouraged and they feel like they can't do it or it's not for them. I'm, I'm quite interested in what you tell them or how you can continue to inspire your, mm -hmm. your own. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, we're not, we're not taught this since we're in kindergarten, so it, it doesn't always come naturally or easily to people. And we don't have a lot of resources for learning that are readily available to the, the wider population so I think it's a normal thing to feel kind of discouraged but um, you know it's it's also something we, we don't want to get in the way of a practice and usually when when this comes up the first thing I do is I ask well what are you doing to help you lucid dream what skills are you practicing and are you practicing them correctly because often what you find is that you know you might you know get somebody that says yeah I've been practicing mild every night you know and it just doesn't work for me and then you ask them, well, what are you doing? Describe the steps you take. And it's totally off. Like, it's completely wrong. And they're not really um, either fully understanding it or they've confused it with something else um, or they're missing some important piece. And so typically when somebody's discouraged or they're having trouble, I think it's useful to take that kind of troubleshooting approach and just help them see that there are actually things that they can be doing. And um, it, it, it's something that I think can be a little bit more empowering. They just need the know-how and the skills to be able to practice it. Of course, you're discouraged if you're not, you know, using the most effective means to, to have lucid dreams. That's one of the most important things. And then, you know, of course, I think it helps just to remind people that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be having lucid dreams every night if you're practicing this. And it's important to have patience and persistence and be open and, you know, welcoming to, you know, remembering all types of dreams, even non-lucid ones. And I think having that, that element of openness can, can really help. And if you're really struggling, you know, one of the best things you can do is, is connect with other people, particularly expert teachers like yourself, Andrew, and, and talk to them. Talk to somebody that knows what it takes to lucid dream and knows how to teach it effectively so you can learn something. You can integrate that into what you're already doing and help you overcome some of the, the humps that you're having. Also connecting with, with other people or, or groups of people that lucid dream that can help you get ideas or, or troubleshoot. There's one more thing I, I do like to bring up, though, because actually this has some parallels with insomnia, is uh, the notion of paradoxical intention. Mm -hmm. So when people are really frustrated that they can't lucid dream, they tend not to be so effective. And 
psychology has taught us for a really long time, you know, the more anxious or frustrated you are about something, the more that impairs your performance. And the same thing kind of happens with insomnia. The more anxious you are to sleep or the fact about the fact that you're not sleeping or frustrated by it, the less likely you are able to sleep. It, it gets in the way of it. And, and so we want to, you know, help people kind of learn to understand that so they can let that go and be a little more compassionate with themselves and, and where they are in their practice. And in insomnia treatments, one of the things that they do is they teach paradoxical intention. So what that is, is they teach um, you to basically set the intention to stay up all night. Don't sleep. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. And what that does is it, it relieves the pressure of um, that you're feeling to, to put yourself to sleep because now you're not trying to do that. And then what happens is people actually fall asleep. And, and we've seen this in, in the workshops with um, Dr. LaBears where someone might get really frustrated and then all of a sudden they, they report, oh, I had a lucid dream. And we say, well, what happened? What did you do? And, and they say, oh, I gave up. And so there's there's something about that um, that frustration that really can get in the way. And um, if that's where you're at, then that's where you want to start. You want to start working with that level of frustration so you can let that go and be a little bit more understanding of where you're at in your practice and that everybody learns differently. And, um, you know, what other creative ways can you um, undertake to, to help you move through the place that you're, you're currently at? Yeah, boy, that's really terrific. That's terrific. And so this one's a little bit more individual, but I'm also very interested, as are um, some listeners who send me questions, if you had to, you know, you're in a sleep lab, and you're all hooked up, and, um, you know, you absolutely positively have to have a lucid dream tonight, What what is your go-to induction method? I mean, what, what do you rely on? It's like, man, if I, I really need to have a lucid dream tonight, where mm -hmm. do you Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you want to use what we know works. So you probably want to have a high level of recall by the time that you get there. Um, you want your sleep to be pretty uh, in balance. So, you know, you're not overly sleep deprived or anything or, um, you know, you, you have trouble actually falling asleep uh, when you get to the lab. Um, you want to use the mild technique. So that means that you've been working on being more aware of your dream signs and rehearsing how you'd set intentions to uh, recognize your dreaming and under certain conditions. Um, another really important thing is to be more explicitly aware of micro awakening. So we all wake up several times a night, but we typically roll over, we, we forget about it, we don't notice it. But those awakenings during the night, that's the prime opportunity for you to remind yourself, okay, I'm about to go right back to sleep. The lucid dream state is really close. Let me reset my mind, uh, reaffirm my intentions so that when I fall back asleep, I can lucid dream. And that's a great opportunity to practice the mild technique and also even apply some wild strategies like we were talking about to induce those wake initiated lucid dreams where you apply mantras, meditation, other concentration types of exercises so you can carry consciousness into the dream state without a lapse in it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's other things, you know, making sure you concentrate your um, your efforts more toward the end of the night when you tend to be dreaming a little bit more 
frequently and, and more intensely, you can always implement a period of sleep interruption. So kind of extend a period of wakefulness in the middle of the night before you go back to bed. What's lovely about being in the sleep laboratory is we have these objective measures and there aren't really protocols developed around this yet that I've seen, but what they should actually be doing is um, combining the subjects efforts to lucid dream with some objective measures and protocols. So they might uh, interrupt the person when they're in the middle of a REM period or they're about to go into REM so they can practice some strategies and um, lucidly enter the dream state, whether uh, through a wild technique or perhaps by, by um, doing the mild technique. But I, I haven't really seen that done in the lab, but it, it really should be looked at a little bit more often. I think there's some studies by um, a Japanese group from some years ago that actually did something like this, where they uh, tried to purposefully induce sleep paralysis, awareness during sleep paralysis. So that has some really relevant applications for studying lucid dreaming in the laboratory setting. Yeah. Well, oh, awesome. And just for our listeners, um, Kristen tossed out the term mild. This, this is a, a, it's called a, an acronym for the mnemonic induction to lucid dreams, which is the technique um, no surprise that Stephen Bears came up with. That I reference in, in one of the posts, I'm quite certain I do under the lucid dreaming track, a four-stage process that you could refer to there that um, Stephen uh, says that he was able through this technique to virtually have lucid dreams at will. Um, and so those are awesome tips, Chris. And I got one or two questions from, from our members. These are quite compelling. So I'm going to pass these your way, and then we'll start to wrap this up. Okay. You know, I, my girlfriend, mm -hmm. I talk all afternoon with you. So, <laughs> okay. um, so in your blog post, the future of brain-computer interface technology could help you lucid dream. Uh, you discussed the possibility of using virtual simulations of non-lucid dreams to mentally rehearse the act of recognizing dream signs. Do you know of anything along these lines that is currently available or in development? Huh. Okay. Uh, well, no, not currently in development, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that kind of technology could be useful for helping people, well, one, inexperienced people get more familiar with what it takes to lucid dreaming, what it might look like, what the hypnagogic state might look like, what it looks like to induce a awakening state of lucid dream. You know, the more familiarity you kind of have with that, the better you might be able to implement that. But, you know, VR technology is not necessary for that. But where I do think it's uh, really interesting is that if there were software applications or games that were developed around this idea of entraining lucid city, you know, that could be really useful. So uh, in a practical sense, well, how do you simulate dreams that actually resonate with the kinds of dreams that people have? Uh, you probably want to start doing that by um, creating virtual environments reflecting the common recurring dreams people tend to have. So you might be, let's say, lost, you know, non-lucid in some sort of virtual reality game. And then you come upon some new dream environment. You're supposed to figure out your next cues and steps or whatever, if it's a puzzle. Or, um, but let's say you're in a classroom environment and the teacher's handing you a test. So you're having that dream again, right? Or maybe you're on top of a car and you're driving from the hood or you're driving from the back seat. You know, it's a very common dream from people. Um, could you sort of use 
those virtual simulations to rehearse remembering that you're dreaming. And how could that look? Well, not just remembering you're dreaming, but maybe you have to carry out some sort of task, um, implement some sort of reality test. You know, the really intriguing application is to extend this further and integrate virtual reality with neurofeedback technology. So neurofeedback is where you measure a person's brain waves and then you give them like audiovisual cues, you feed back to them where their brain state is so they can train a certain neural signature. Now, we don't exactly know what the neural signatures for lucid dreaming is yet per se, but hopefully in the future we will. It would be really interesting in those kinds of scenarios where you're supposed to rehearse in a virtual environment becoming lucid to integrate um, neurofeedback capabilities into these environments because you can um, you can train your brain to be in the optimal state, um, uh, uptrain those the sort of natural brain rhythms and re reward the desired behavior. You know that's getting lucid directly in correspondence with the stimuli that have significance for, you know, situations where we're supposed to be becoming lucid. So there's just a lot of different ways where I think technology can help us become uh, lucid um, more often. You know, the interface that I'm kind of talking about right now, I've never seen this anywhere except in um, the autism field, um, but it's it could be a possibility in the future if there was enough funding and, and research on this state, you know, we could potentially harness these technologies to help us become lucid a lot better. Yeah, yeah fantastic. And so, Kristen, as we start to wrap this up, um, let's talk a little bit about um, your future work, um, how people can get in touch with you. Do you um, um, actually do things like um, online Skype therapy sessions, so like if there's if there's someone interested in working with you, do you do type offer mm -hmm. kind of services? So so tell a little bit of how people can connect with you. Um, I, I definitely want to plug to my um, to our audience here your lucid dreaming course, which is um, an extremely popular one. And obviously very well done. I think now um, after listening to you, people know why. So tell us a little bit more about how we can support you with your work, um, things that you're working on. Um, how they can get in touch with you. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, if you're interested more in, you know, the psychotherapeutic aspects, you know, you'd have to be a resident of California and you can get in touch with me through my website. That's luciditysleeppsych.com. And if you're more interested in just learning lucid dreaming and, you know, you're not interested in how that can help with, you know, sort of ailments or stresses or, or illnesses, um, I do have a broader site dedicated to education and, and courses on that. And that's called my mindfullucidreaming.com. And so uh, through there, I, I offer a six-week online course. Uh, I just did one in January. We had about 50 people. We're going to do another one next January. And what this is, is over six weeks, you're going to get a lot of skills training, worksheets. You have an online dream journal. You have a community to support you. You have ways of tracking different metrics, your, your dream recall, your, your lucid dreams, your meditation practices over time. Um, you can 
the system is really neat too. You can uh, link getting text messages every morning that asks you, what did you dream about? Just in case you didn't have time to journal and it, it will upload it into a, a neat little graph for you. Um, and we also do webinars and um, we have time to kind of process the material and, and do real work. Uh, I really love the, the um, course interface that we've developed because uh, it gives me an opportunity to work with people in a really structured way because people, if they have the time or the desire, they can do structured assignments. And so when everybody's kind of focusing on the same thing at a, uh, the same time, that gives me a lot of opportunity to really be able to help a lot of people at once understand the skills that we know really work really well for lucid dreaming and not just to induce them, but to use lucid dreaming effectively. So that that was just a joy for me to run this past year of really, uh, it was something really rewarding. Uh, we ended up, because people wanted a little bit more afterwards, uh, a little bit more support, we ended up forming an alumni group that was a little bit smaller. And so we meet about every other month to talk about our dreams and we're still using the same system to share our dreams and things like that. And so if you're interested in starting the new year 2020 um, uh, off with a little bit more lucidity, I, I definitely encourage anybody to get in touch and sign up or, or ask me questions about it. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about it. Um, what else is going on? I, I guess I'm, uh, I do some, if you're in the San Diego or Southern California area, I, I typically do a few local, mostly free um, workshops or, or meetups in the area, which has just been really awesome to meet people that are, you know, around that you can meet up with face to face and, and talk about dreams uh, without having to travel. So I definitely encourage that. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's pretty much what I've been working on lately. I, I do have a book that's, I think, going to be coming out in the fall, but um, I probably won't say too much about that yet, but uh, just that it, it's going to be a little bit more of a beginner's guide and have a lot of skills training um, for people that really want to work on those foundational induction tools and, and refine those. I, I think uh, it's something that a lot of people will enjoy. And so if you're interested in that or other things, um, I definitely encourage you to sign up for my newsletter at my website and I'll keep you updated. Kristen, that's awesome. And it also gives them uh, some excuse to get together after the book is published and bring you back on because um, you are absolutely the wealth of resource that you have always been and will continue to be. So thank you so much, dear friend. Thank for you, taking Andrew. Your mm -hmm. busy schedule to, to chat with us. Um, I sure as heck learned a lot. And um, as okay. usual, you're one of the real jewels in this field. So let's positively stay in touch. We'll bring you back on after your book is out. Um, and we did have a couple more questions for you. It didn't quite have enough time to get to them, so we'll uh, recycle those back around when we bring you back in after your um, book is published. And um, on behalf of all our membership here, um, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us. We really appreciate it. Likewise, and I just I love these conversations. I feel like I learned a lot from you, even just from talking to you. And I just love how you can pull so much out of me and all the other people that you're working with. And just really looking forward to seeing how you continue this work, Andrew. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the supportive words, Kristen, and, and all the best to you. And we'll definitely stay in touch. Take care okay. now. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.